episode 46, Funston's Flu. I'm assistant curator Merle Riedel, and you're listening to a January 16, 2008 podcast from the Kansas Historical Society. In this podcast, museum staff reveal the story behind the story about artifacts featured on the Cool Things section of our website, kshs.org. Nineteen eighteen was already a rough year for humanity, but when a cook at Camp Funston came down with the flu, things got a whole lot worse. Join Assistant Registrar Nikayla Zimmerman and me as we examine a quarantine sign used in the greatest disease outbreak in history. Did this global pandemic originate at a backwater army camp in north central Kansas? I cannot say. Then, 147 years ago, Kansans danced in the street when statehood was announced. On January 29th, 2008, over 4,000 children will be dancing through the halls of the Historical Society as they commemorate the state's birthday on Kansas Day. Find out how this holiday came about and learn what events will be taking place on that day. Finally, get ready for another round of Six Degrees of William Allen White, Election 2008. This week, we connect the Emporia editor to Dennis Kucinich, the UFO-spotting congressman from Ohio and current Democratic presidential candidate. But first, Funston's flu. We are going to talk today about the subject of your last Cool Things article, which was an influenza sign used by Dr. Chester Stocks in Bouchon, Kansas. It's a pretty simple sign, just basic uh, white cardstock with influenza written across it in big black letters. Correct. Um, Simple, but I feel a little creepy. Why do you feel like it's creepy? I feel it's creepy because I know what it's about. So it pretty much to me is like an indicator of death. (laughs) And the whole idea of getting the influenza is just horrifying. Right. When and why did Dr. Stocks use this sign? Well, the function of the sign is, like you said, it is, it's a quarantine sign. It's used to um, place in the window of a household to indicate uh, to people that the household has some sort of infectious disease, some sort of communicable disease. This one says influenza, but there were signs of other varying types. You know, it was, they could say diphtheria or typhoid. Um, and quarantine was just one way of sort of countering that. And this was probably used around the turn of the century. And it was used, as you said by Dr. Chester Stocks of Bouchon, Kansas. And he served as the sort of uh, country doctor for Bouchon. But um, so he actually helped some towns um, around the area like Allen and Americus. And he did that from 1896 to 1934. He worked there, uh, pretty much the only doctor in the area. He was born in Iowa, uh, went to the University Medical College in Kansas City, uh, and for some unknown reason, he came to Bashong, Kansas, to start a medical practice. So again, he was a country doctor. And what's significant is um, he was doing this at a time that medicine was sort of changing in the world. Germ, germ theory had been introduced in 1860, and it was I think it was kind of just reaching the country doctors by the turn of the century where they were really starting to pick it up. And he he embraced it. I mean, he understood it, which is which will be significant when we're talking about this sign because I think this sign was probably used specifically for the influenza outbreak of 1918 or. 
I don't, I don't want to say more popularly known, but probably better known as the Spanish influenza. And that was a, a massive pandemic, global pandemic throughout the world that took place from March 1918 to June 1920. So really only about a two-year time period, the time period that this, um, that this disease spread. It ended up killing about 5 million people globally. Um, and that's sort of just a rough guess because it went all over the world, right? So it's in it's on the African continent where people, um, you know, at the turn of the century, where not everybody was tracking how many deaths took place. I mean, not just, all sort of all kinds of third world countries. Um, so there's not really hard numbers, but it's estimated at 50 million people, possibly more, possibly up to 100 people. Um, it killed 600,000 Americans. Which fifty million people? That's um, that's more people than all of the conflicts of the twentieth century totaled together mm-hmm. in a in a period of two years. It's incredible. I mean, it it it. I can't even imagine, um, you know, living through that. But what's really interesting, I think, is that it literally spread to every part of the world. Um, there were cases, there were situations where it nearly wiped out population of populations of Pacific Islands. And there were even cases, Nikayla, <laughs> there were even cases of it reported in the Arctic. Which is amazing, because how do the germs survive in the Arctic? I don't know. It was hard for human beings to get to the Arctic. How did, <laughs> how did, how did germs get there? They're crafty, those germs. Um, at one point, the United States Surgeon General um, actually said, if the epidemic continues its mathematical rate of acceleration, Civilization could easily disappear from the face of the earth within a few weeks. That is the United States Surgeon General that said that. It really was the bubonic plague of its time, wasn't it? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I think that this sign, this specific sign, was probably something that was issued either by the county health department or the state health department. And it was issued to local doctors um, so they could try to, as best they could, quarantine um, and to prevent the spread of the Spanish influenza. Well, at some point in all of our lives, we have experienced the flu, and it usually didn't require our mothers to place a warning sign in the window of our homes to keep people away. How was Spanish influenza different from regular old flu, and how did people acquire the illness? Well, Spanish influenza is um, a variant of uh, a flu. Um, and a flu is caused by a viral infection. And as you know, a virus is sort of somewhere between a bacteria and a cell. Uh, it's made of sort of DNA material, um, and it infects a cell, and it uses the cell itself to replicate the virus. Um, and flu or influenza is actually what's considered endemic. It's it's always present. It's mm-hmm. present in everything. Um, it's always out there. It's only that some variants of it um, can be lethal. Spanish influenza is special because of its ability to evolve rapidly. And the way it does that is when the virus infects a cell and it replicates itself, um, each replicant is mutated. So it's just slightly different. So what, what happens is the immune system never really has the ability to actually uh, come up with an antibody for it. And it's always continually upgrading itself to make itself more lethal. And that's what happened with Spanish influenza is that the earlier cases reported weren't quite as deadly. And then at some point... Um, it upgraded itself to become more lethal. And the thing with it is, is it, it also its genetic material can recombinate, right? Mm-hmm. So you can have it and then get over it, and then you can get reinfected from it again, and it be, can become more lethal. And so when it gets into humans, well, what's the most effective way for it to p- transmit from one human to another? It is through coughing. Right. And that's usually how most um, 
that's usually how most humans die from influenza is they get um, pneumonia, which is kind of a secondary infection. And then pneumonia is actually caused by um, sort of an overreaction of our immune system. It produces a lot of fluids to try to, to try to battle the virus. And the fluids get in the lung, they fill up the lung, um, and people will die of pneumonia. Which was interesting with Spanish, Spanish influenza is because it targeted the young, which most flus and most diseases, for that matter, usually target the older or the extremely young or people that are sick already. Mm-hmm. But influenza tended to attack the healthy young people, and that's because they had a really a hyperactive immune system. Um, some of the symptoms associated with um, influenza was along with just typical coughing, you get to cough up blood. Oh, man. Uh, you may also have blood because you're rupturing capillaries a lot of because, you, because you're coughing so hard. Right. So you may have uh, blood coming from the nose or ears. Uh, the face will have a blue tint to it. Uh, uncontrolled hemorrhaging in the lungs, lungs that cause patients to essentially drown in their own body fluid. So the blue tint to their skin, that's because they can't breathe. They're not I think, getting I think that's oxygen. because, again, capillaries, capillaries are getting ruptured are in the skin surface. Yeah. Um, and this happens in a really, it can happen in a really rapid amount of time. Like one to two days is what was going on with the Spanish influenza. Okay, so Camp Funston at Fort Riley um, here in Kansas played a notorious role in the 1918 epidemic. Um, can you tell us a little bit, bit about what its function was? Sure. Modern epidemiologists have actually tracked down the origin of that 1918 influenza outbreak. They tracked it down to Camp Funston. Camp Funston was, you know, what would be considered ground zero. That's theoretically where it all started. Um, Funston is a part of Fort Riley, which is a larger federal um, army post in north and sort of north central Kansas. Mm-hmm. Um, um, it was established in 1853, so the post itself has been there since the territorial period. But Camp Funston was built to be a training site for World War I soldiers, so it was built in 1917. So what happened was soldiers were shoved into close corners. Uh, they really didn't have adequate heating systems. Um, they had some poor sanitation. Um, and, of course, what does all that <laughs> create the perfect environment for? Flu. Yeah, for, for an outbreak, a little yeah. outbreak. Um so on March 4th, 1918, a private, a cook uh, from Camp Funston, reported ill. And from there, within three weeks, there was about 1,100 soldiers on the post that displayed the same symptoms. So soldiers were getting sick, and they were getting sick really, really rapidly. So, of course, from there, because, because it's a training site, because soldiers are moving around all over, it goes from Camp Funston to, you know, training posts all over the United States. And as it goes to the training post, then it hits every civilian population along the way and starts spreading throughout the United States. Well, um, because it's World War One, of course, all these soldiers are being shipped over to Europe. So then it hits the continent of Europe and spreads to all regions of the world. It gets into shipping lines. And so really, World War One and the fact that the World War One, it just made it so easy for a disease to spread because you had humans moving back and forth. And also, it created a population that was pr- that was pretty stressed, you know, like yeah. their we, their immune systems theoretically were weakened because of combat stress, because they hadn't had a lot to eat in Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was just really, it was a really great environment for a really nasty disease to spread. I read also that it was perfect because people in this country anyway, were gathering together for like bond drives and, you know, and then when the war was over, even celebrating the armistice, they'd all get together in these huge groups and, you know, two or three days later, they'd have a ton of flu cases on their hands where, you know, people had been together and caught it from others who were in the group. Sure. It was, it was perfect timing for a flu epidemic. And the war also creates another problem because 
none of the none of the countries that were involved in the war they didn't want to report the numbers of soldiers that were getting sick because mm-hmm. the other guys because the bad guys would find out about it so all those numbers were kept you know kept under wraps they didn't they didn't want to publicize that there was a big flu a flu epidemic in the military and that's really that relates to why it's called Spanish influenza because Spain was not involved they weren't one of the active belligerents in World War 1 mm-hmm. they didn't censor their media so you know it would it got out all over the world that that Spain was having this huge flu epidemic and so people assume that that's where it started from unfortunately it didn't start <laughs> it didn't. at Camp Funston Kansas so it really could have been called the Funston flu or the have. Kansas flu yeah. or something like that yeah okay we refer to the 1918 outbreak of the Spanish influenza as an epidemic. So what makes it an epidemic? Um what how does an outbreak take on epidemic proportions? Well, first of all, there's there uh, disease control centers um always expect a certain amount of uh flu cases. So mm-hmm. there's an acceptable level of not just flu but any disease. I mean, these are terms that apply to any disease. An outbreak is anything that exceeds that limit, but it's usually localized to one area. An epidemic is something that exceeds the expected mm-hmm. but it can appear in a larger population uh and it has the potential to spread from there so but it stays localized so uh like the bubonic plague would be considered an epidemic it killed a lot of people mm-hmm. uh more than normal but it never really left europe right. that's where it stayed now a pandemic is something that is much broader and it shows up um in multiple locations um and it usually involves a new variation of a disease that's never been seen before what's interesting is in the past most disease outbreaks have always sort of been an epidemic why because there wasn't a lot of traffic necessarily to link population centers now it's mm-hmm. actually really easy yeah. for an epidemic to quickly quickly evolve and evolve into a pandemic um how did doctors treat the illness and did they did they have any success Not really. There was attempts to develop a vaccine, but like I said the disease would would mutate so quickly. They never really effectively right. came up with a vaccine. So, uh basically most places focused on prevention and uh sort of mitigating what was going on at the time. The primary measures like I said were uh quarantine, like this sign was used for. Um and the other primary measure was hygiene. This is when people really started to adopt to adopt the aspects of hygiene and like i said they were seeing the concepts of germ theory um being exhibited so uh that's when they started promoting to wash your hands stop drinking out of the same cup exactly <laughs> uh, yeah and that's a really good point because in Kansas actually there were by 1919 there were 12 12,000 people that had died from influenza um and in Wichita in the month of January alone there were 188 deaths reported in one month i mean that's like that's not that's like above the average of people that are dying in your city you have an additional 188 people dying so like you were talking about don't drink from the community cup well you may have heard of a doctor samuel crumbine <laughs> yes <laughs> yeah he was the director of the kansas state board of health he was a really interesting guy he was sort of a country doctor um from dodge city but he was kind of the man on the spot he was the center of kansas's reaction to the influenza He started promoting some things. He had actually this is stuff he promoted even before the influenza outbreak, but he really started to hammer at home when it happened. Is he didn't want people drinking from community cups anymore. You know, he started a whole ad campaign, stop drinking from community cups. Um he wanted people to uh wash your hands. You know, and these were kind of revolutionary theories at the time. Yeah. Wash your hands and don't spit on the sidewalk. Stop spitting everywhere. 
He um, also was big into the swat the fly. He thought flies were big carriers of disease. And that's kind of interesting because I was reading some accounts from um, a guy at Fort Riley who worked in the hospital at Camp Funston treating these guys who came with the flu. And he would describe how in the summer, and even one of the letters that he wrote home, it was October, and he was talking about how bad the flies were swarming. And so... Maybe maybe Crumbian was right about his theory of flies carrying disease. Maybe, oh, yeah. you know, that had something to do with it at Fort Riley, too. Yeah. I w- it sounds kind of we, – we make him sound kind of folksy with these things like that. But he was that was stuff he was promoting. But he was also really fighting for money and resources from the federal government to, to establish hospitals um, where these people could be cared for and where their bodies could be disposed of properly so it wouldn't spread more disease. So that was some of the things that the Kansas was doing to counter stuff. Um, some of the things that other people, <laughs> um, some home remedies that people were using um, in many parts of the world, um, a lot of parts of the United States, they're backwater, right? And uh, they may not n- know all this newfangled, you know, don't drink from community cuffs, <laughs> wash your hands kind of stuff. So they try their own cures for influenza. In some places, mothers would tell their children to stuff salt up their noses and wear <laughs> goose goose grease uh, chest rubs or bags of garlic scented gum around their neck. That, that is yeah. nice. That's <laughs> like, okay, here's my favorite though. Is like the the onion was apparently very popular, uh, a popular uh, treatment for influenza. A Pennsylvania woman boasted of serving up onion omelets, onion salads, onion soups for every meal. Pretty pretty creepy. But she also said none of her kids got influenza. <laughs> See, that's a good point. So finally, and this is really disturbing, finally, uh, a four-year-old girl from Portland, Oregon, was said to have recovered fully from the flu after her mother doused her with onion syrup and buried her from head to toe for three days in glistening raw onions. Interesting. And slightly disgusting. I don't know which was worse, the flu or the home remedy. <laughs> Okay, so we've learned um, some important things today from the 1918 flu epidemic. Um, And I think they're applicable today. You know, we're kind of at the height of flu season. We're worried now about epidemic flu or pandemic flu, like we talked about the bird flu before. So I think we need to talk about what we've learned from the flu. Here's what I've learned. First, during an epidemic, avoid large gatherings of people. That just seems like common sense. Mm -hmm. Second, if you're serving in the military, pay pay close attention to the general health of the person cooking your meals. Because if that guy's got the flu... Because if that cook is coughing... That's right. Don't eat whatever he's feeding you. Well, what I learned is, for one, there's there's no escape from stuff like this. Um, If you can get sick... In the Arctic, <laughs> you're not going to outrun it. And number two, I learned um, that uh, onions can be made into a syrup. Who I knew? Didn't, I didn't know that. <laughs> well, it doesn't sound very good for pancakes, though. <laughs> All right, Merle, thanks for teaching us about the flu epidemic. Sure. Some consider Christmas the greatest holiday of the year. Well, they must not be from Kansas. Join Nikayla Zimmerman and me as we discuss Kansas Day. She'll tell us the origin of this great holiday and reveal the historical society's plans for commemorating it. Nikayla, now we're going to talk about Kansas Day, which is a celebration here in Kansas. Um, And it's an event that we commemorate here at the Kansas Museum of History, and it's coming up pretty soon. That's right. Uh, 
What is Kansas Day, uh, Nikayla, and uh, why isn't it a federally recognized holiday? Well, Kansas Day is a commemoration of the day that Kansas was admitted to the Union as a state. That happened on January 29th, 1861. We celebrate it here in Kansas. It's not even a state holiday, so um, it's not a federal holiday. The the uh, United States government does not recognize it as a holiday. Um, and we like to celebrate it because it's, a, it's an important event in Kansas history. And um, people in the state seem to really enjoy it. When was the first Kansas Day? Well, technically, the first Kansas Day was January 29th, 1861. Um, there were celebrations to commemorate that day. Um, they did it in a different way than we do now. Now it's more about education and remembering the past. If you'll remember, and people who listen to our podcast often know, Kansas had quite a struggle to become a state um, because of the disagreement over whether it was going to be admitted to the Union as a slave state or as a free state. And Kansas went through five years of, um, of territorial government um, before they actually became a state. And those were five grueling, bloody, ugly years. It was, you know, it was bad times in Kansas. So it took five years before we could meet all the requirements to move from territorial status to state status. And some of those requirements were like we had to increase our population by a certain amount. Uh, We had to have a viable, and this is critical, we had to have a viable (laughs) ratified constitution. Which we had to go through four to get one that they settled on. The fourth one was the one that went through the government. And actually, um, the House passed Kansas as a state, passed the bill to make Kansas as a state in 1860, April of 1860. Um, The Senate kept it from happening for a solid year. They declined to bring it into um, bring it into motion until 1861. So they they waited a good long time, and it was a struggle to get to statehood. So when people found out that they had achieved that goal, they were ecstatic. They were thrilled. You know, finally it had happened. In Lawrence, which was a free state stronghold where some of the battles over statehood were the bloodiest, people were overjoyed. Um, the Honorable B.F. Simpson described that day in Lawrence, and it was at night. It was a cold and snowy night in January, as they often are here in Kansas. He described the scene as this. There was a sound of revelry that night in Lawrence, for the news spread like wildfire through the town. Houses were lighted, doors were thrown open, and the people gathered in public places. So it's cold, snowing on the ground, nine o'clock at night, People find out they've become a state and they're out in the street dancing. They're having a celebration, yeah. Okay, so that was the first, like, that's what the that's what Kansas Day commemorates. When were the actual first, like, celebrations of Kansas Day? Well, probably the first celebrations that are similar to those we have today happened around the turn of the century. Those people who were settlers um, and, and early people in the territory, they... Um, they were getting older and they realized the importance of preserving this past. So you had clubs like the Kansas Day Club and the Women's Kansas Day Club and the Good Government Club here in Topeka who made it their mission to preserve that early history of the state of Kansas. And they would have dinners and potlucks and lectures on Kansas Day. The Kansas Museum of History and the Kansas Capitol commemorate Kansas Day every year. You served on the museum's planning committee uh, for this year's uh, celebration of the great holiday. Yes. Um, what are some of the events and uh, what are some of the specifics like day and time uh, that will be going on this year? It's going to be happening on Tuesday, January 29th this year um, here at the museum. The theme for this year is be a history detective. So it's encouraging kids to uh, learn about 
objects and buildings and documents by looking for clues in them to uh, tell them how stuff was used and that kind of thing. Um, so there'll be activities for little kids where they're basically going to be learning about state symbols and the basics of Kansas Day. And then there'll also be activities um, about historic buildings, um, three-dimensional objects or artifacts. There'll be scavenger hunts in the gallery. There'll be um, some activities about um, personal journals and diaries. And there'll be an activity related to archaeology about um, clay pots teaching kids how people made things a long time ago. We'll also have performers like Priscilla Howe, who's a storyteller, and a group called Laughing Matters who use juggling and humor to sharpen. They're going to use those to teach kids how to sharpen their detective skills. That totally, totally makes sense. <laughs> yeah, I haven't seen them. I don't know how that works yet. And then in the gallery, there'll be demonstrators to display um, knitting and weaving. And most importantly, the galleries are free that day. Galleries are free that day. And if you want more information about the event, you can go to our website, kshs.org. There's a link at the top of the page you can click on to find out how to register for the event and to get all the specifics. And now it's time for another round of Six Degrees of William Allen White, Election 2008. Joining me today, as usual, is the Museum Assistant Director, Rebecca Martin, and Assistant Registrar, Nikayla Zimmerman. Good morning, ladies. Hello. Hi. This week, we are connecting the famous newspaper editor, William Allen White, to Ohio Congressman Dennis Kucinich, the former boy mayor of Cleveland and current Democratic presidential candidate. Nikayla, I believe you have a solution. That's right. This solution comes from Nick in Emporia. He writes, Dennis Kucinich is married to his third wife, Elizabeth Harper Kucinich. Mrs. Kucinich, a Brit, was a volunteer for a British Red Cross refugee unit. The British Red Cross is part of the International Red Cross, of which the American Red Cross is a part of as well. During World War I, William Allen White was an observer of the front for the Red Cross. So that is how Dennis Kucinich is connected to William Allen White. So the connection is Dennis to Elizabeth to the Red Cross to William Allen White, four degrees. Uh, well, that was uh, pretty impressive, uh, Rebecca. Where does that put um, where does that put Dennis Kucinich on the William Allen White scale of electability? And just keep in mind, this scale is uh, based on a complex algorithm that factors in the candidate's proximity to William Allen White in both time and space, and then generates a quantifiable score to determine a candidate's probability of election. Where where's uh, Kucinich on that scale? He's tied with Santa Claus, uh, four <laughs> degrees, uh, no, no comment on Kucinich, I mean, uh, four degrees with Barack Obama, uh, Hillary Clinton, John McCain, Rudy Giuliani, and Santa Claus, all at four. So, um, oh, and we have to report, too, sadly, our front runner, three degrees, Bill Richardson, recently dropped out of the presidential oh, race. Oh, say it ain't yeah. so. Yeah, so we're waiting for a new clear front runner to... Um, Rank high on the scale of electability. Maybe so, we could start like a strong write-in campaign for Bill Richardson. <laughs> if he would have just hung out until he got the William Allen White endorsement. Mm. Could have swung the whole thing. Tragic. Be a long wait. <laughs> uh, Rebecca, would you like to issue the challenge for the next episode? Yes. Uh, to our listeners, the next challenge is to connect William Allen White to Mitt Romney current uh, Republican candidate for president and also former CEO of the 2002 Olympic Games and former governor of Massachusetts. Uh, now I want to move on to another challenge we recently issued, and the challenge was to connect you, uh, the listener, or anyone for that matter, to William Allen White. Um, and Nikayla, I believe you have some feedback for us. 
Yes, we got an email from Roberta in Butler County, Kansas. She writes, My daughter Anissa has a connection to William Allen White. On page 21 of the History of Rosalia Township in Butler County from 1869 to 1935, it states, The G.D. Youngs were welcomed to the county by a pudgy four-year-old William Allen White who offered Mrs. Young his black pup, $300, which he could go home and get, and a kitten when the cat hatched. (laughs) For her baby daughter. The G.D. Youngs were my daughter's great, great, great grandparents. I like that. A kitten when the cat hatched. Yeah. So William Allen White at four years old was already pretty folksy, huh? Yeah. And pudgy. (laughs) Must be both inherited traits. (laughs) Okay. So, uh, Rebecca, last week some of us reviewed our connection to William Allen White. And I'm curious if you have a connection to William Allen White. Yes, I do, and it didn't, <clears throat> it didn't take me very long to remember it. Um, William Allen White had a son, William Lindsay White, and as our listeners know, William Lindsay White knew Dwight Eisenhower. He, he helped uh, convince to run for the U.S. presidency, and who, of course, Eisenhower won the presidency. Uh, Lindsay also wrote a bio of Dwight Eisenhower. Well, my father served in the Air Force during Eisenhower's presidency, and one of the more illustrious duties he had was washing the commander-in-chief's car. There you go. Wait, what? So your? Did you say your dad? My dad. Your dad washed Eisenhower's Eisenhower's car. car? <laughs> President Eisenhower's car. Mm-hmm. Wow. wow. And maybe even pick some spare chains out of the seat cushions. So, okay, this is a dumb question. He washed his car while Eisenhower was president, or yes. while he was the Supreme Allied? No, while he was president. Mm-hmm. It was in the fifties. Wow. Wow. Well, that's really cool. That may trump. Bob's Ed Asner connection. <laughs> I like that it's one, Ed too. Asner to Dynasty to <laughs> yeah. William Allen <laughs> Yeah, my dad's only claim to fame during his entire service. He washed Eisenhower's car. <laughs> well, that's a big deal. That's a good claim to fame. That is good. All right. Um, so in two weeks, if you come up with a connection to William Allen White, uh, if you come up with a connection... Uh, between Mitt Romney and William Allen White, or a connection between yourself and William Allen White, we want to hear about it. Send your solution to podcasts at kshs.org. And that is podcast with an S. That concludes episode 46, Funston's Flu. Come back in two weeks when curator Blair Tarr tells us about the Kansas Constitution. It's a tale that involves election fraud, slavery, religious zealots, and a whole lot of rough drafts. This podcast is a production of the Kansas Historical Society. Real people, real stories.